0: Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Well, thanks. Again, it's good to be here with you. And if you would turn with me in your Bibles if you want to, or they'll be projected overhead to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And... This, I, I understand you've been doing a series in Acts, it, it so happened, uh, I've been preaching the last couple of Sundays, and uh, the, two weeks ago I had to preach in another church, and they, did a, they were doing a series on Acts as well, so when uh, they contacted me and I said, with Pastor Steve, I said, is it okay if I do this one? And he said, yeah, yeah, that's great, so that, that works. So um, it worked out well for me and hopefully for, for your series sort of going on. But I realize you're going back a little ways again. You've been as far as something like Acts 17, so, uh, but hopping around. And so this is that familiar story in Acts. If you start in chapter 3, we'll read chapter 4. But in Acts chapter 3, uh, there's Peter and John are coming into the temple. This is shortly after Jesus' his crucifixion and then resurrection and ascension. And they're in the temple, and they meet this uh, lame man who's begging. And you probably, some of you even remember the old song, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy went walking and leaping and praising God. And, And so there's this dramatic healing happens right in the temple. And of course, people come swarming to hear and see what's happened. And it gives this opportunity, it provides an opportunity for Peter uh, and John to, to share what just happened. This is, this is Jesus doing his work. And, and so they share all about how he's the Messiah, and he's the promised one, the, the prophet who is to come, and you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And it's just this whole presentation of the gospel message And then uh, after that, as as they're doing that, the leadership comes, the temple leadership. And then that's where we come in, in chapter 4. So beginning at verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of years ago, back when we could have friends over for dinner, now we've started doing that a little bit again, I think now, but uh, we had uh, a couple over, some friends, and we were, th- they they're just having a friendly uh, dinner together, chatting. Uh, this couple, though, was they're not Christians, and in the course of our conversation, we got to the topic of, of faith and of, you know, why we believe what we believe, so we were, were sharing and I remember particularly uh, the wife in, of, of this couple, the, um, she was talking about, we were talking about people and problems and you know, all the, the issues in the world, and she said to us, I believe that people never change, ultimately. People, with the way they were born, is the way they will live the rest of their lives. They may, for a time, put on a show of being somewhat different, but DNA will always win the day. You cannot change people. Well, I was thinking about that in the light of this because uh, it, it struck me that in this text, it talks about, in chapter, back in chapter 3, it says, here was a man who was lame from birth. Now he's over 40 years old. Can you change people? Can people really be healed and saved and transformed? Can lives be changed? And so, uh, just to again give a little bit of the context, they, they, as we said, this, this is this familiar story and, and a dramatic healing has happened. Uh, Peter calls the people back in chapter 3 to, to repenting, repentance and believe in Jesus Christ. Your sins will be forgiven and you will have, I, I love that phrase, you will have times of refreshing. Isn't that a great little phrase? You'll have times of refreshing. Of all things, the leadership are opposed. They're upset by what's happening. They're confused, but they're also not happy about what these apostles are sharing. And so they come up, and and they, they arrest them. Now, this is, you have to understand, this is the ruling elite of the Jewish people based in Jerusalem. And particularly, it is the Sadducees we hear. Which is also interesting because, if you remember, throughout most of the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, for most of the the time in the Gospels, Jesus' chief opponents were the Pharisees. But by the time you get to the book of Acts, it appears that the primary opponents are actually the Sadducees now, rather than the Pharisees. In fact, sometimes the Pharisees actually stick up. For the believers, it's interesting—a little transition that happens there—and apparently, a number of them became believers. But now it's the Sadducees, these these really ruling elite, who uh, are sort of the the establishment. They're the wealthier ones; they tend to be. Um, they are some of the, many of the high priests, and the priests were part of the Sadducees party. They did not believe in the coming of a personal Messiah. They believed the Messianic Age had already begun. Way back in the 2nd century B.C. with the the Maccabean revolt against the Greeks when they threw off the Greek uh, oppression and became an independent state, that was the start, they believed, of the Messianic Age. But there's not a personal Messiah coming. And particularly, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that becomes the real key problem here because the the apostles are teaching, and it comes up over and over again, that Jesus was raised. God raised him from the dead. And so they see these apostles as subversives, maybe causing some problems because they were collaborators, the Sadducees, with the, the Roman leaders. They didn't want to cause any trouble. And so they see these apostles as potentially subversive elements within society and as heretics, teaching of a Messiah and a resurrection of the dead. Now it's interesting, at this point in Acts, earlier on in Acts, you you see almost these two parties. You see the people happy to see what's happening, they are praising God, they're rejoicing in what's happening. But the leadership is largely opposed. Now, that will change by about Acts 6, 7, when the Stephen incident comes up. But at this point, it's still the people are quite happy with what's going on. And so we come to this trial. And they bring them before they arrest them, put them in prison overnight, and then bring them out. And of all things, who shows up? Annas and Caiaphas. And some of the other leaders now those names may well stir up some memories because it wasn't that many chapters wasn't that many weeks maybe months before this that annas and caiaphas were leading another trial of jesus and so you have to imagine that when these disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin, the leadership, before Annas and Caiaphas and the others, they must have been wondering, oh, this didn't go well last time, <laughs> at least not initially. And what, where is this going to lead for us, which was a, a, a real possibility? Of course, Jesus had warned them, right, that this was coming. Luke 21, Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 12, Jesus said these words to his disciples. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So Jesus had told them this was coming, and here already is the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. And notice what they say to the leaders. They say, if we're on trial for an act of kindness, for a good deed. Wouldn't it be great if throughout history the church was always on trial only for acts of kindness? Tragically, lamentably, that's not the case. But it would be great. And, and to be honest, I don't want to be overly pessimistic here either. There have been many acts of kindness. <laughs> many good things have happened. So we want to remember that as well. Let's hope that in our case, that's always true as well. Acts of kindness. But what comes up, the question that kind of comes up here is the apostles are brought on trial. They're... they're they're the defense, right? And the prosecution is is bringing this these accusation against them. But before very long, it's almost like everything switches around, and who's really the accused and who's the accusers? The apostles are on trial; they're the accused ones. But very shortly, they become the accusers. They turn the tables on those who the leadership there, and they say. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. It isn't the first time they've said that, actually. Peter says it back in chapter 2 at the uh, day of Pentecost. Back in chapter 3, they said it to the people. Now he says it again. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. And so these apostles become very quickly almost like they are the prosecutors, and they're addressing boldly these these leaders and it leaves the leaders sort of astonished who who are these guys unschooled laymen commoners that doesn't mean they were necessarily illiterate or anything like that but it just means they hadn't gone to rabbinical school they hadn't been to seminary who are they to be teaching people And it leaves the leadership perplexed. Who are these guys and what can we do about it? Because the sign, and it's repeatedly stressed here, what happened is absolutely undeniable. They did heal someone. We cannot deny what they've done. It's obvious to us and to all the people. And so what really gets stressed here is this bold witness of the apostles. Uh, Verse 13, when they, that is the leaders, they saw the courage or the boldness of Peter and John. And that word literally means, the word boldness here, it means freedom of speech. Unreserved. They're just proclaiming it like it is, fearlessly, unafraid to just tell the truth, to speak it out before the leaders. It comes up again in, at the, later on in the chapter when they're praying. Uh, the, the, the people gather after this whole incident and they're thanking God and praying to Him. And they say in verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable Your servants to speak Your word with great boldness. It's the same word in Greek. And it's that boldness that shocks the leadership. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Not that there's a second Pentecost sort of, but it's more for that moment, God's Spirit enables them to say what needs to be said. They have a special anointing. And and then, then the text says it this way. They notice, they took note, they recognize that they had been with Jesus. These guys, they'd been around Jesus. They're like Jesus. John 7. In John chapter 7, verse 15, the Jews there were amazed and asked, and this is about Jesus, how did this man get such learning? without having been taught. And now these disciples like Jesus because they've been with Jesus. You want to be a witness for God? We have to be with Jesus to be schooled, to be deeply immersed in His Word and in His teaching. This Jesus, we're told, this Jesus, verse 12, salvation, or verse, sorry, verse uh, 11, this Jesus, and literally, Jesus, it just says in in the NIV, but the the Greek actually says, this one is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, and and that is obviously a A reference, it's a quote from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm referring to Jesus prophetically. This one is the stone you rejected, but he's God's chosen, chosen rock. And so those familiar words in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. Now that's not a very popular sentiment, belief to hold today in our pluralistic culture but the text and and you have to understand this is a it's a strong uh strongly negative there is no other name by which you must be saved there is salvation in no other he says it in a double negative to emphasize there is just no other way it's not like you know we just came through the olympics and we're we're as, as good Canadians, hockey players, you know, we're used to, we, we, we win the gold, well, okay, blame the NHL this year, but, uh, you know, we're used to it, and, and it's sort of, some, some, some uh, commentators from a more liberal standpoint will look at this text and say, well, that, they didn't really mean there's no other way, what they're just, it's just like this sort of, you know, you cheer for your team, there's no other team but Canada, no other hockey's the country, there's no other team but the Canucks. You know, we're the only team. And that's what they're saying here. But that's not the way it is. The text is clear. There's salvation in no other. There's no other way. And, and again, even the term salvation here, it's back in chapter, verse 9 when he said, this man has been healed It's the verbal form of the same word. And then he says here, salvation, healing, is in no other than Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which you must be healed, saved. And and so salvation means healing, but it means much more than that than just physical healing. It's all of that transformation that God can do through Jesus that Jesus works in people's lives. There's no other way. Now, I like the words of the the well-known commentator F.F. Bruce when he talks about this verse because he says this, and I quote, The founders of the great world religions are not to be disparaged by followers of the Christian way, but of none of them can it be said that there is no saving health in anyone else to one alone belongs that title the savior of the world close quote in other words we don't it doesn't give us a, a a license to just go out and talk down about all other faiths that's not what we do we just talk about jesus because he is the savior of the world Well, what are the outcomes then? What happens because of this amazing healing that that takes place of this man and the arrest and all that happens? And what the text makes clear is that even the arrest of the apostles cannot stop the word from going forward. Did you notice back in verse 4? It says they arrested Peter and John in verse 3 because it was evening. They put them in jail until the next day, but verse 4 makes this, just to make it clear, it didn't matter. But many who heard the word, they say the message in in NIV, but literally it's the word, but many who heard the word believed so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Even the arrest could not hinder the gospel the word from doing its work in people's lives. People's lives were changed. And you hear about ongoing witness happening. We can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. We talk about it. God is glorified, we're told. The people, what can we do with these men? Because the people are praising God. They're glorifying God for what's happened here. In spite of this arrest, in spite of everything we do, people are praising God. Did you also note another outcome? One of the things that happens here is they arrest the disciples, they threaten them, they warn them to not speak anymore, but they never refute their Main claim that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, if they had evidence to prove that, they would have clearly said, but it didn't happen. But they don't, because they can't. Just as undeniable it is that that man was healed, in the same way, it's undeniable Jesus rose from the dead. You They couldn't refute that. So they tell him not to speak anymore, but they cannot refute the resurrection. Jesus rose, the hope of the world. But finally, what do they do? What happens in this text? As we said even at the start, Jesus heals. He transforms a life. And he continues to promise that kind of healing and saving transformation for the whole world. Jesus changes lives. I read recently a book by, some of you will remember, it's by two authors actually, uh, Father and Son. Uh, Many of you probably are familiar with Tony Campolo, the evangelist, older now but he he was very famous or quite well known in evangelical circles and in christian circles uh previously and and still to some extent uh his son bart campolo was also an evangelist he's now about in his 50s i think 50 years old or more Uh, bart campolo was was involved and very involved in social action working with the poor in the inner city and all of that kind of, uh, of work that's going on in ministry and service Um, But through that whole experience, Bart Campolo, over the years, lost his faith. And when he was about 50 or so, he announced to Tony, his father, that he no longer believed in God. He was an atheist, and he'd become a secular humanist. And so there's an interesting dialogue in this book. The book is entitled, Why I Left, Why I Stayed. Why I left, why I stayed. It's a dialogue between Tony and his son, Bart. There's a lot more to the book, but at one point, Tony Campolo, when he's explaining his side, what he thinks happened to his son, Bart, he says, uh, and I'll just sort of paraphrase most of it, um, he talks about how Bart, as he was serving so many people in the inner city, people were living self-defeating lifestyles, you know, violence and drugs and alcohol abuse, dysfunctional family relationships, dependency on government handouts, bart began to feel that some people are simply incapable of being saved or transformed in any way. And then uh, Tony Campolo, he, he quotes, or he, he cites the uh, Russian philosopher Nikolai Bergeyev And Bergeyev says this, he claims that when someone stops believing in the capacity of other people to grow and change and engage in noble, worthwhile pursuits, that individual eventually loses faith in God. Drawing on Dostoevsky, the great Russian writer, author, Berdayev explains that to lose sight of the divine presence in even the lowliest person is the beginning of atheism. And the reverse is also true. To lose faith in God is to lose faith in people. They can't change. Now, And and then he can pull on, I'll quote here. He says about his son, uh, quoting, um, After reaching out to the seemingly hopeless men and women in his neighborhood and seeing almost no positive results from his labors of love, Bart gave up on saving such people and decided his mission was merely to comfort them in their affliction instead when my son no longer believed that literally anyone and everyone has possibilities for radical change, the seeds of doubt in his mind sprang into full-grown agnosticism." quote. Now, secular humanists, I'm sure, and I have friends who are secular humanists, would argue that actually we have a higher view of humanity. You know, we have this hope in humanity. That humanity can change. And uh, humanity, if we work together, it'll be better. But trust me, the, the secular humanist view of humanity is, is a flat, shallow humanity. It's lost the sense of the divine image of God. The Psalm 8 kind of hope in humanity. You've created him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with honor and glory. But they've lost that and flattened it out. We're just a, a conglomeration of chemicals thrown together by chance. There's no image of God in humanity. Now, I was struck by this recently. We watched a movie, my wife and I, uh, our son put us onto this. It's a documentary about uh, the drug overdose, you know, the, the whole overdose issue happening right now and deaths by by overdose it's a horrible situation and there's one movie i can't even remember the name of it but it it's it's based in the downtown east side of vancouver and so they, they were talking about the whole issue and all that but what struck us was throughout that movie everything was on uh safe supply harm reduction But there was nothing about rehabilitation. There was one reference to one one person who went to a rehab center and it didn't work and came out and od and died. There was nothing else about rehabilitation. The mantra today is harm reduction, safe supply. Now, I'm not an expert in this, and don't get me wrong. I, I think it's important. Harm reduction is important. It's crucial. But if we give no hope for rehabilitation, that people can actually change, be changed, and it must come from outside of us, contra-humanism's hope in ourselves. It must come from a Savior. But that people can be changed and renewed, transformed by the power of Jesus. If we've lost that, what hope is there? Jesus heals. Healing happens. Now, I know as well as all of us here that healing doesn't always happen fully and completely this side of the grave. And we know that some people, many people continue to struggle. But there is hope for healing because of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection promises us even more than that. Ultimate, eternal hope and healing. And may that be your hope. And the hope of the world. The hope of the, those young people that we heard about earlier uh, from the, 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 the offer, offering a cause. That there is hope. Jesus changes lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the healing that comes. That there is is no one who is beyond hope because of the power of the resurrection, because of your power, Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for your healing for this world, whether it be physical healing or other forms of transformation in our own lives, in the lives of people here and around the world. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.